Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. As you're doing that, pastorally, one of the questions that often comes up, especially with youth pastors, but it's true for adults too, people are often wondering, what's next? Like, what should I be doing with my life? You come to a point where you're looking at your career, you're looking at maybe where you live, and you're wondering, am I, in, am I within the will of God? Like, is, what, what does he want me to do for the next chapter? And that's a really important question. It's a big question. And as we turn to this text, we don't find the answer to that question, unfortunately. So, we, so Gary, sorry. But, but here's what we do see. What we see in this passage is that even though we don't know what's next, Jesus always does. He always does. He knows what's next for you, for me, for this church. And he powerfully prepares and positions his people such that they will be ready for that thing that they don't know is on the horizon. He always does that. That's what we see in this text. Chapter 10 is an enormous... You you said, well, we just turned to chapter 9. I know. Well, chapter 10 is where things just get flipped upside down. That's when the Gentiles are brought into the church. Peter's going to be right at the center of that plan. He doesn't know that here in chapter 9. He doesn't know that he's going to be right at the center of this thing that's going to cause massive ripples through the church. And yet, even though he doesn't know, God is positioning, preparing. Through, through Jesus, he's leading Peter to where he needs to be. He's teaching him the lessons he needs to learn. And he's going to be right where God would have him be. That's the way God leads his people. It's the way he leads his church. So he knows. I don't need to know. Because he knows. Look with me now to Acts chapter 9. We're going to read from verses 32 to 43. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. Chapter 9, verse 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa... The disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I realize that anytime we read a passage like that, a passage full of signs and, and wonders, our minds naturally gravitate towards those signs and we, we begin to ask questions. In particular, we ask this question, why don't we see more miracles like this in the church today? 
That's an appropriate question for a text like this. But we actually, we answered that question back on November 6th of 2022 when we came to a passage very similar to this. That sermon's called Many Signs and Wonders. You can find it on the website if you weren't with us. And and we'll deal with it at length in that sermon. We're not going to preach the same sermon again today. But I would pull out just three principles as we grapple with this before we jump into the story itself. Three principles as we come to these texts with signs and wonders. First of all, signs and wonders served to validate the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. Everybody can agree about that. Now, sometimes people disagree about, well, what should we expect moving beyond them? Well, we're not answering that right now. What we can all agree on is that they served as like fireworks in the time of Jesus and the apostles because God was doing a new thing. And as this this kingdom was advancing and breaking into the world, God was sending off all of these Again, fireworks, all these neon signs saying, eyes up, look here, everything is changing. We see that. And that principle carries through to this passage. Because as I mentioned, this story is positioning us, it's it's leading right into Acts chapter 10, where the Gentiles are going to be brought into the church. It's transitioning right to chapter 10, where again, the church is going to get flipped on its head. The world is going to get flipped on its head. That's about to happen. And so we should expect that God starts launching fireworks. He's saying, look, listen, watch. Something big is coming. That's the first principle. The second is that signs and wonders were never an end unto themselves. So we used this illustration last time, and I hope this is helpful. As you approach the Grand Canyon, right, you're going to see the Grand Canyon, you're very excited, and as you drive that way, eventually you're inevitably going to see the sign that says, welcome to the Grand Canyon. And that's an exciting sign. Right, because you've been driving on the road, it's been quite boring, but now here you come to this sign that something exciting is ahead. Now, it wouldn't be inappropriate for you at that point to pull over, you know, to, to get out with your wife and take a snapshot with the sign. That's, that would be an appropriate response. It's very exciting. It would be inappropriate, however, if you parked the car and set up a tent and, and just made your camp there at the sign. So we're going to have a wonderful trip. Well, well, no, that would be to miss the point, because actually, it's what's beyond the sign that's glorious. It's what the sign is pointing forward to that is so glorious. So enjoy the sign and and take that picture for sure. But then press forward to what's ahead. So it is here. The signs are pointing ahead. And we want to make sure that we don't miss what's ahead because the sign is so exciting. Now, that leads to the third principle. Because the challenge then is sometimes we can overreact and say, well, if signs can sometimes be distracting, then let's just knock down all the signs and forget them all together. Well, no, the sign actually was put there by God himself. It's a gift. It's a good gift. Therefore, signs and wonders are gifts from God. We're allowed to ask for them. We're going to see, what well, will we see the kinds of things in our midst that we're going to read about here in, in chapter 9? I would argue probably not. And I would say that because God was doing a different thing there in that moment than he's doing here in this moment. And so he gives different gifts appropriate for the task. He's wise. He knows exactly what we need, and he'll give us what we need. Are we allowed to ask for him to do wonderful, miraculous things? Certainly we are. James chapter 5 says, if anyone among you is sick, go to the elders. Let them pray for you, and the prayer of faith will heal. So we're going to pray, and we're going to expect. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about these gifts that God has given to the church, and within those gifts, he talks about Miracles. He talks about healing. And so since we're not in the business of erasing verses from the Bible that make us uncomfortable, we're going to see that and we're going to open our hands and say, God, whatever gift you have for us, 
we will receive it, and with grateful hearts. But we're not going to be upset if he gives us this gift instead of that gift. He'll give us what we need when we need it. You know, just this week, actually, in our prayer group, we, uh, on Thursday morning, uh, we received a report. I asked if I could share this. He said, yes. Our brother Keith was have, had another gallbladder attack. He's just about to go away on a trip. And uh, it was a terrible attack. In the middle of the night, he's, he's lying on the bathroom floor in agonizing pain. Allie's about to call the ambulance because um, he's had this episode before. But before she calls the ambulance, she prays. And if you know Allie and Keith, you know, these aren't, this isn't silliness. These are not silly people, right? They're just faith-filled people. And they said, let's just ask the Lord. She prayed. Keith immediately stood up, pain-free. They praised God. They went to bed. Praise God. You know, he, God does that. And then here, we just saw this, this little boy have a little episode. We're reminded that our bodies are still frail. That we, even though God does these things, we still live in a, a fallen, broken world. In God's wisdom, he's put both of those seeds in our church just this week. I'm, I'm inclined to agree with G. Campbell Morgan. He says, let us take the gifts he gives and use them and not sigh for other gifts that are withheld in wisdom. So moving forward as a church, I would just encourage us, let's not adopt a posture of unbelief and skepticism and suspicion. Let's be faith-filled and ask God to do the things that only he can do. But let's resolve to accept with gratitude whatever gifts he sees fit to give. He's our Father. He knows what we need. Amen? And if you'd like a further treatment of that, again, you can go back. But I want to jump now into this particular story and just ask a question. What's this story about? And this is a very simple outline. I told Gary I was a bit embarrassed by how simple the outline is. But uh, in a sense, it's a simple story. So hopefully the simple outline will pull you in. First, what do we see in this story? What's it about? We see a disciple in motion. That's, that's where it begins. Look at verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. So he's going to and fro, and that's because if you look back a verse at verse 31, in this summary statement, we see that the church is now thriving, expanding in Judea and Galilee and Samaria. The church is just bursting at the seams. And Peter, being a good shepherd, is, he's going and he's, he's seeing the needs and he's encouraging people and he's discipling them and praying for them and providing leadership. And he's being pulled further and further out of the comfortable center that was Jerusalem. Bear in mind, it would have been very easy for Peter to stay at Jerusalem. It would have been very easy for him to say, well, this is kind of where it all begins. This is the hub. So I'll be here. If you have a need, you know where to find me. You can meet me here. But I'm just going to stay where I'm comfortable. Except that wasn't what Peter was called to, was it? It's not what we are called to, is it? Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Go, Jesus says. We're not called to hide. We're not called to hoard or to hibernate. Go. Peter heard that. Peter lived that. And that's why we find in this story a disciple in motion. And it brings us to the next detail in the story. We find a man in need. Look at verse 33. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Pause here. One of the things that struck me 
as I was working through the text was, you know, there is so much need around us. And, and Peter, of course, was living in the same broken world that we're living in, right? So he's going around and he, he, here he finds this man in need. And it struck me that we encounter people in need all the time, particularly in this church. I don't know the demographics of every church, but I look across this congregation and I see a bunch of nurses, and I see a bunch of doctors, I see a bunch of first responders, I see a bunch of counselors, people working in mental health, a bunch of you working even at the, the lighthouse here locally, people who are working in context where every single day you walk in, you open your eyes, and you are surrounded by overwhelming, seemingly unending need. And you probably feel that, don't you? How do you live in a context like that? Well, one of the tools that I've observed, and I've, it's a tool I've used myself to, to great harm at times, is, is to desensitize yourself. It's like a survival instinct. You almost have to. You, you, you turn it all off, you go numb to the need, because this is just the way it is, and you walk through a, a place full of broken people the way that other folks walk through the grocery store, because this is, this is who I am. This is my world. And I would just, I would just encourage you today, even though you're working in an impossible field or you have an impossible assignment, I would encourage you to, to ask God to turn that dial, to soften that heart that's become calloused as a way of self-preservation. We need soft hearts, even though we're surrounded by need. Jesus had a soft heart. He refused to turn a blind eye to the needs that were all around him. And praise God for that, because we were the needy people, right? We were the broken people. But Jesus leaned in close and he stooped down and he picked us up and he healed us, he restored us. And here Peter, this disciple of Jesus, comes across a man in need and Peter stoops down and he leans in close. Here's a man who's, who's been bedridden for eight years, which means this isn't a lifelong condition. Something happened and now this man is paralyzed and he's in bed. He has a name, Aeneas. He's, he's not a character in a story, he's a person. Presumably he has a family family that was impacted by this change. The life that they used to know is, is completely different now. And Peter sees this overwhelming need, and he leans in close. And the text says, Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. Now to be clear, I'm not saying that the application here is that we must go and heal every single broken person in the world. I'm not saying we should go to the doctor and, and hold a prayer meeting, or go to the hospital and just and empty the place you know, with one prayer meeting. In God's wisdom, his timeline is often very different than our own. So that's not what I'm saying. But here's what I am saying. I'm saying that we as a people need to grow in faith. We as a people need to grow in compassion. We as a people need to grow in obedience. We as a people need to resolve not to walk past all the hurt, all the broken. We as a people need to ask God to do things that only He can do. Right? To not be held back by whatever, our theological systems or, or our experiences from the past, but just to ask God to minister and to meet and to move, even to heal. Jesus Christ healed this man in need. And that led directly to the next thing that we see in the text. We see a city transformed. Look at verse 35. 
And all the residents of of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. And can I tell you something? That is the greatest miracle in the story of Aeneas. Isn't it? Now, it was awesome that Aeneas was healed. It was awesome that this paralyzed man got up, picked up his bed, and walked away. Amazing. But we know that logically, eventually Aeneas grew old. Eventually his body broke down. Eventually Aeneas died. That's okay. He went to be with Jesus. But, but that miracle was temporary. It was a sign. But that miracle prepared the way, brought people in, for a greater miracle, which was a transformed city. The people of Lydda and Sharon turning to Jesus. Dead people coming to life. That happened. And we continue reading and we find a familiar pattern. Next in the text, we find a woman in need. Look at verses 36 to 38. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lida was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So we're introduced here to Tabitha. And Tabitha was a, a disciple. We're told that specifically. She was a disciple, a follower of Jesus. She loved the Lord and she loved her city. So Tabitha is walking in obedience to what we've seen. She sees the people in need around her in her city. And what does she do? She takes her ability of of knitting or sewing or whatever, however they were making clothes in those days, and she starts making clothes. And she's making clothes to clothe the people in her church and the people in her community. And P.S., as we're celebrating the gifts that God gives, and we're thankful that God gives these gifts of healing, let's remember that there's another gift in this story, and that's this gift of charity. And praise God for that gift. Oh, that he would fill our church with more and more Tabithas too. Right? She's just filled by the Spirit of God and, and in, in love as an act of obedience, she's got this gift that she exercises where she's clothing people and meeting their physical needs with compassion. But, but then she became ill, this sweet woman. And eventually, we don't know how long she was ill, we don't know how, how awful this illness was, but she succumbed eventually to this illness. And hearing that the Apostle Peter was ministering in Lydda, the church sent messengers to bring Peter there to help. Brings us to the next familiar detail we see in this story, which is again a disciple in motion. So this isn't written in here. Let's just pause. So going back to that initial question, right, of uh, am I, like, where does God want me next? What's the next thing? Where am I supposed to be? One principle that I think we can faithfully take from, from this passage is that one of the ways that God moves us is by putting needs right in front of our face. You know, sometimes what, if we're, we're seeking the will of God, the, the best step, you can have that, that thought meeting and sit in your room for, for days on end, and, and there's wisdom there in praying and discerning and seeking. But sometimes God just puts something right in front of your face and just meet the need. I know for myself, I was really struck. We had this men's conference this weekend, and I, I was asked to speak. And it just struck me how weird it is. I, uh, when I look back to my life, and I, you know, I look at Gary, Keith isn't here today, but I never wanted to be a pastor. I grew up, I'm a pastor's kid. I never wanted this, and that's a different story. But this, is not, this wasn't what I thought God had given me, and I never preached, I never taught, I never did any of this. I, I liked playing music. I loved being a garbage man. I really did. Like, I, was, I just was content Pursuing that life of making CDs in my garage and picking up garbage. 
And that was it. What, what, and then there was a, a, a men's breakfast, and they said, we need a speaker, Levi. Could you be the speaker? And I said, well, no, because I'm not a speaker. I don't ever speak. I, that's not something I do. I said, everybody's gone. It's you. It's got to be you. A need. Like, All right. P.S. Change your vacation schedules, because somebody ought to be here, but fine. Like, I'll, I will do this. And then in that one little step of obedience, Pastor Paul happens to be there. P.S. Why wasn't Pastor Paul speaking... Starting to feel like a trap, right? But then he comes to me afterwards and he says, you know, we, we need someone to, to preach and to step into this role of leading at Redeemer. Maybe you should put down the guitar. Maybe that should be you. Prayed about it for a month and felt like, no. And he came back to me again and said, Levi, that need's still there. It's been three months now. The need's still there. So I prayed with, with some people I respect here in this congregation and took that step of faith and Never preached, never taught, never any of that. That wasn't something, if you would ask, like, what are your gifts? That wouldn't even be close to being on my radar. But God moved me into this thing. And then this weekend, I'm preaching at this conference. This conference that, you know, 10 years ago, I was sitting in the seats, just taking my diligent notes. And I thought, why on earth? How did this happen? But the way that it happens is God just puts these things in front of us. And this isn't about me. If, if you were to get up and share your story, I would imagine we would have very similar accounts. Just when, yeah, you, maybe you had a plan, you had a vision, but God put something right in front of your face and he moves you to where you're supposed to be. That was not written as an aside. But there's a pattern. This woman in need, now this disciple in motion, we read, so Peter rose and went with them, these messengers that have come to bring him to Joppa. When he arrived, they took him to the upper room and all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. From Lida to Joppa is eight miles. You know, we read that story, and it sounds like he was there in a snap. Walking eight miles is, is, I mean, you could do it, but that's a big walk. And actually, it brings Peter now 40 miles from Jerusalem. And, and that's, that's the bigger narrative here. 40 miles from the center, from where it would have been easy for Peter to camp. Because Jesus has a way of just moving us to where we need to be. Peter doesn't realize it. He has no idea what's coming in chapter 10 in Caesarea. But he's getting closer and closer to this place. The scene that unfolds next is the one that grabs our attention whenever we read the story. Verses 40 to 41. But Peter put them all outside and he knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows... He presented her alive. Interesting detail. Just notice that he puts them outside, which I think is worth contrasting what we often will see in the big television faith healers of our day, the thing that makes us so suspicious of things like this. Peter, he sends them all outside. He kneels down next to this body. He says, Tabitha, arise. There's no shouting, no showmanship, no incantation, no special ceremony, no dance. He speaks And she's risen. And as you might expect, when Tabitha walked out of that room, it made quite an impression. It brings us to our sixth point, which I bet you could guess. A city transformed. Transformed lives often lead to transformed cities. Transformed lives often lead to transformed cities. I get so excited every time we watch these brothers, these sisters come up out of that water, and then we send them out, back into that world. Because that 
changes things, doesn't it? And I'm praying that God would send more and more and more transformed lives out into the city of Aurelia. And look at verse 42. It became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And once again, that is the greatest miracle in this story. The resurrection of Tabitha was amazing. But let's pull back for a second and look at this from her perspective. At risk of offending you, as I reflected on this this week, this struck me. Okay, Think about it from Tabitha's perspective. The text is very clear to say that she was a disciple. She was a follower of Jesus. She was, it's the real deal. Real faith, evidenced by these real works. And she gets this illness. She's sick. It's terrible being sick. And eventually this illness gets so bad, it kills her. She goes through this process of dying. And even though we know what's on the other side of dying, dying's a scary thing, isn't it? It's a doorway that is unpleasant to walk through, even though there's glory on the other side. But she's been through it. She gets to the other side. The text tells us her body's in the room. Right? So Tabitha's not in the room. Where's Tabitha? She's with Jesus. Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, you know, you, you're away from this tent. You're with the Lord. And it's, it's better to be with the Lord. So her spirit's there with Jesus. Her body's here waiting for the final resurrection. Then he prays, and Jesus says, Tabitha, you're going back. And I'm not Tabitha, but that would, I imagine that's a tough one. So she comes, she comes back into this old woman body, and she wakes up, and she's healed. And I'm going to just guess, this isn't thus saith the Lord, this is just a thought. I'm going to guess that when we run into Tabitha in glory, and we say, Tabitha, walk us through that. What? It sounds like she was kind of the loser of the story. But I would guess that she would say, hey, I would do it again and again and again. But I would suspect she'd follow up and say, but not because it was so fun to live 10 more years in that old frail body and then to die again. Because that is what happened, right? Eventually. Not because I got to have some more years with my body and then die again. But I would do it again and again and again. Because God used that sign to bring dead people to life in my city. And many believed in the Lord. Many people were dead in their sins and they were brought to newness of life. Many people on the road to an everlasting torment in hell. That's what the Bible says. But instead they were generously brought into the kingdom of heaven and made sons and daughters. Many dry bones, Ezekiel's language, suddenly rattling to life in the city of Joppa. And that is the miracle that eternally matters. History has proven that the church goes sideways in a hurry when we start fixating on the wrong miracles. This passage is filled with miracles, each one of them a gift from God. I'm thankful for all of them, even though some of them make me squeamish because I don't see these things all the time. They're from God. Praise Him. Do it again. But even though it's filled with miracles, there's one miracle that stands up above all the rest, and that is the miracle of newness of life. The miracle of taking these eternal beings that are on a road to destruction and making them eternal monuments of mercy and conduits of grace to the world. Those are the miracles that are most exciting. And yet, I would hazard a guess that as we read the text today, those were the miracles we were most inclined to rush past. And that's the challenge, isn't it? I believe God heals. I do. I believe that God still heals today. And I ask him for that without shame. 
And I will continue to until I die. I believe that. But here's the thing. I know that sometimes his timeline isn't mine. Sometimes he doesn't answer that request the way that I expected to. And if, if in this human life I never once see another healing again, I'm going to be just fine. But if I never again see a, a person brought to newness of life in Christ, if I never again see the miracle of conversion, well, that is a devastating reality. That's the miracle that I want. That's the miracle I roll out of bed each day praying for, asking for. When I'm praying for people, that's the miracle I want. Beyond any other request I ask for them, I'm, I hope God provides for your job. I hope that God heals this illness that you have. I'm going to pray for those things, but I'm not going to close this prayer without praying for the miracle that you ultimately need. That's the miracle that we should be seeking as a people in this place. Amen? Now, we're going to conclude, but here I want to actually scale back. So we kind of, first we started with the principles for dealing with these signs, and then we looked at this story. But now I want to, whoo, look at the whole book of Acts. Don't worry, there's only one point in this last question. I want to ask one last question. Why is this story here? Because we already had a story about Peter's miracles. As I said, back in November. Remember Peter's healing uh, lame, a lame man, and then people are actually lining up to fall in Peter's shadow just so that his shadow will touch them and they'll be healed. We had that story. And Luke, remember, he's writing this on his parchment. He's only got a limited amount of space. It's not like an endless word document. It's like, no, you got to be, you pick the stories that matter and you cut the stuff that can be cut. So why do we have this story? Is it just a matter of repetition? No, I would argue as we look at the larger story of Acts, what we're meant to see in this story is we're meant to see movement, expansion, and ultimately what we're meant to see is that Jesus is still building his church. That's, that's the big idea of what we see here. So just imagine for a moment, I read to you those passages. You know, you close your eyes and I say, hey, I'm going to read to you a story from the Bible. Imagine I read those, but I just took Peter's name out of it. So read you the story, but without Peter's name. You would be tempted to think that I was reading from one of the Gospels, wouldn't you? That's the point. Luke wrote them that way. So, for example, let me read this. Peter says to the paralyzed man, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. Well, in Mark's Gospel, Jesus comes to a paralyzed man. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Peter comes to this dead woman, says, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. That sounds an awful lot like what we read in Mark's Gospel when Jesus comes to the dead girl, and he says, taking her by the hand, he says to her, Talitha, kumi. Which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. Luke knows what he's doing. These are intentional echoes. He, he, wants, us to, he wants us to see that like this is, this is that. What's the point? The point is what Luke told us at the very beginning of this book. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, that was the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. What's he implying? And in this second book, the book of Acts, I'm going to tell you about the things that Jesus is continuing to do. The things he's continuing to teach. Because Jesus isn't done. 
I finished that first book and Jesus died and Jesus rose and Jesus ascended. But that doesn't mean that Jesus is done. Oh, he's working. He's teaching. He's moving. He's building. But now he's doing it through his people. That's the point. Paul reminds us, now you, all right, so well, just the apostles. No, Paul reminds us, now you, church, you, Redeemer, brothers and sisters, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Jesus is still working in your home, in your workplace, in this city. Jesus is still on the move. He's still building. But we're the body of Christ now. And He ministers through us. We're agents of of His grace and blessing. Now, I told you at the beginning that Peter's on the brink of this paradigm-altering change. Gentiles are coming in. Church flipped upside down. Well, here, look at where the story ends. So now Peter's been moving further and further and further from the center, further from Jerusalem. He doesn't know what's in store, but Jesus is leading him, and the story ends. And he, Peter, stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. The fact that Peter ends the story, staying in the house of a tanner, suggests that Jesus is already doing the work in Peter's heart that needs to be done to prepare him for this next step. God's preparing his heart for the overhaul. Good Jews don't go into a tanner's house. The tanner's job is to deal with dead animals. This is not the place that a good Jew wants to be found residing. G. Campbell Morgan notes here, the trade of the tanner was held in such supreme contempt that if a girl was betrothed to a tanner without knowing that he followed that calling, the betrothal was what? She could cancel it. Oh, I didn't know you were a tanner. Yuck, done. A tanner had to build his house 50 cubits outside the city. And yet here we find Peter. This seemingly a throwaway verse. Here we find Peter staying in Joppa, 40 miles away from Jerusalem, in the house of Simon the tanner. Because Jesus is building his church. And his kingdom exists to expand. And it's expanding. And in the coming weeks, we're going to meet some people in this story who are resisting the expansion, trying to stand in the way of the expansion, trying to keep everything the way that it always used to be, and fighting Peter at every turn. There's going to be lots of people trying to stand in the way, but Peter won't be one of them. Because Peter will be ready. Because Jesus has made Peter ready. Because Peter has been trained to become a person who follows Jesus wherever he leads. And I pray that we would be men and women of the same posture. I don't know what the Lord has in store for you. I don't know the answer to that initial question of what, where you'll be in the next five years. But this passage reminds us that we don't need to know because Jesus knows. And Jesus powerfully prepares and positions his people exactly where they need to be because Jesus is still building his church. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we do hold that truth that it goes forth, it never returns void. I have no idea what lessons you would have for, for each of the people in this room. Uh, and that's, I don't need to know because you're building your church. Um, I don't know the various applications that will be taken from this passage. The, the areas that will be surrendered to you in repentance, I don't need to know because it's your church and it's your word. 
And Lord, I thank you that even in the areas where I've been clumsy, God, and I confess that I can be clumsy, areas where I haven't been as clear as I would like to be, um, you were preaching a better sermon than anything that could ever come out of my mouth. And, and you're pressing and applying and teaching and leading your people because it's your church. So God, thank you that we get to be a part of this mission. And thank you that this mission is not dependent upon us. I pray that you would mobilize your people. Right now in this room, every person who has put their trust in Jesus is a member of the body of Christ with distinct gifts, responsibilities, assignments that are different from the person next to them and behind them. And all of those gifts matter. Lord, and, and we are thankful for the gifts that we receive. We're thankful for the story of our, of our brother being healed. Lord, we're thankful for this, this story of, of Tabitha's generosity and just making garments. Lord, it makes me think of our sister Alexandria, who we're praying for that you would heal her, yet she's gone through this trial. But Lord, here's a woman who's making little uh, clothing items for all the babies that are born in this church, and that's a gift from you. Lord, all of it, it, it uniquely, distinctly, you're weaving together your people, building up the church in the city of Aurelia and in the world. Thank you, God, that we get to be a part of it. Uh, Lord, we love you. I pray that you would help us to be grateful people, grateful for all the gifts that you give. Lord, asking for what we think we need, but trusting that we'll always receive what we actually need because we have a good Father. Lord, I pray for those in this room who don't know you, who don't love you. I pray that today their eyes would be open to see that they today can live. Lord, I pray maybe you've put some, change, some transformed people in their lives. Lord, maybe they're here today because they've seen the change in their spouse or they've seen the change in their friend from work or they're just here because they recognize that there's something wrong, something needs to change and they don't know what it is. I pray that they would see today that there is a Savior whose name is Jesus. He came to seek and save the lost. Lord, I pray that you'd bring about repentance. I pray that you'd bring about faith. And I thank you, God, that only you can do that work and you delight to do it. So we ask for it again. We ask for that greatest of all miracles. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?